Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Home on the Range. Beautiful country. Man can get lost out here. Forget there's people and things that ain't so simple as this. How long have we been riding together, Charlie? Nigh on 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know what to call that? Call it a decade. Sorry, sorry, that's the 2003 film Open Range, starring Robert Duvall and Kevin Costner, the, uh, the one with that realistic shotgun damage. It's pretty great. Are you sure you want the other one? Okay, I'm on the range. I know a place pretty as pie. Welcome to Patch of Heaven, where the animals aren't just animals, they're family. Here, have an apple. Don't go near any luau's, though. Walt Disney Pictures presents... Home on the Range, featuring new music from the composer of The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, and songs performed by Katie Lang, Bonnie Raitt, and Tim McGraw. Say, girls. Got milk? Well, if it isn't the Phony Express. I'm sorry, Pearl. They're gonna auction off Patch of Heaven. Featuring the voice of well-known racist maniac Roseanne Barr in a time before Twitter could alert the world to what a terrible person she was. But make no mistake, she was terrible back then, too. When ABC called and asked me to explain my egregious and unforgivable tweet, I told them I thought Valerie Jarrett was white. About 40 minutes after that, my show was canceled before even one advertiser pulled out and I was labeled a racist. Why, you ask? Well, the answer is simple. It's because I voted for Donald Trump, and that is not allowed in Hollywood. Later, I thought the bitch was white! God damn it! I thought the bitch was white! Alameda Slim just one little purchase and the whole dang territory belongs to me. Luckily, I got it! They have a plan. We go nab that Alameda Slim and use the reward money to save the farm! Disney's Home on the Range on April 2, Bust a Move. <laughs> Who put this here? Good news, Disney. Now the crows and Dumbo aren't the most shameful part of your past. Did you ever see an elephant fly? <laughs> well, I seen a horse fly. Oh, I seen a dragon fly. <laughs> I seen a house fly. <laughs> We're back again with Daniel Floyd to continue the Disney animated history shows. Hello, Dan. Hello. And hello, Sharon. Hello. This is a story about three cows that try to save their farm from a yodeling cattle rustler. They succeed, and equilibrium is restored. <clears throat> so, Dan, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Don't say anything else, Dan! I'm sorry! There is uh, nothing to this film! Okay, go for it. It's worth noting that we recorded this show back in 2015, way before the Roseanne Barr cow shit hit the fan. So the following defence from Dan doesn't take that into account... And he has a great deal less of an opinion for the film these days. To quote Dan in a recent email, I can't believe how much has happened since we started recording these. Job changes, move, and I think I even said something nice about Roseanne Barr in the Home on the Range episode. Fuck. Admittedly, going into this film, my expectations were as low as could possibly be. Because <laughs> I had never seen it. I had never heard any praise for it. I knew it was the last gasp of the traditional Disney studio a year before the 
well, the 3D films started coming out, yeah. and I just expected nothing. I just expected it was going to be really tedious. It was really tedious, and remains to date one of Disney's most forgettable animated movies. And yes, we are aware of the irony of emulating a TV show with its own share of shameful actor behavior. I Honestly, I actually quite like it, though. I'm not saying it's one of it's not going to be one of the great Disney classics or anything. It's not it's not up there with the great Renaissance stuff. It's not even necessarily up there with some of the great earlier stuff. Songs of the South, maybe. But after what to me felt like a pretty bland imitation of former greatness that Brother Bear was the, a smaller little fun romp like Home on the Range to me felt pretty charming in an Emperor's New Groove kind of way. Like it's not. It did remind me most of Emperor's New Groove in terms of uh, scale and animation. Yeah, and because so many of the films, especially after Lion King, so many of the Disney features seemed to feel like they had to be big in scale. They had to be the blockbusters. They had to do. They had to make Lion King money. There were very few smaller, more intimate feeling Disney films being made at this point. It really wasn't until the big renaissance blockbuster formula was wearing thin and they were starting to get desperate and try different stuff that we got the fun little stuff like Lilo and Stitch which is definitely a smaller more intimate yeah. feeling film that's the first and, one that sprung to mind when you mentioned that yeah and Emperor's New Groove as well even though that was originally intended to be one of those big blockbusters and then they just turned it into a smaller goofy comedy thing at the last minute out of desperation it fell into a table the potions exploded and it turned into the Emperor's New Groove <laughs> yes well you put. might want to think about getting them relabeled uh, I want to watch Emperor's New Groove again. Yeah, so, sorry. Go with the it's, feeling. It, it's definitely not shooting for the stars in the same way that Bro- Brother Bear did. And not all of the gags land. I'll admit that as well. But I think the character appeal and the story fundamentals, more, important, more importantly, are solid. I think mm. that in a very basic level, the story in this is working much better than Brother Bear's is. Even this if that so story is silly. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, carry on. That's- I, and I honestly think Home on the Range, small though it small though it is and silly, deserves a little more love than it gets. Mm. I'm gonna keep going. This is fun. Explain <laughs> why. Like, um, give, give, uh, you need to cite precedent to give me reasons okay. and, and uh, character and story beats that were particularly uh, appealing to you. I think. All right. Well, I'll start with saying that I think the cast is actually quite enjoyable, and they all do a fine job. I think Roseanne Barr is fun mm-hmm. and. I think Jennifer Tilly is actually a lot of fun as sort of the airheaded cow grace. She is lovely. Judy Dinch is actually awesome too. I really like Judy Dinch's character Mm -hmm. in this and the animation on her character as well. I really, some really great expression work. I think Randy Quaid is a lot of fun as Alameda Slim. And I get the feeling he actually did that yodeling for that song. They did some stunt. (laughs) There were some uh, uh, professional yodelers who came in and did uh, some of it for him, but he he had a good go on uh, the beginnings of yodels. It was because you could mess yourself up if you yodel too hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yodeling injury is really... (laughs) Hospital sweeping the nation. And you've you've got uh, just in supporting roles just kind of filling the cracks Estelle Harris being great Steve Buscemi being fun Estelle Harris for folks at home is remember Mrs. Potato Head in the Toy Story films Her. yes yeah. in this one she's just a really panicky screaming chicken mm. and, well and Estelle Harris is really funny when she's panicky and screaming mm-hmm. her, her voice is wonderful at this point I spent 25 minutes looking for a suitable audio clip from Home on the Range on YouTube but none could be found 
I'm not joking. I literally wasted my time trying to find a bit of the film that would exemplify the good voice acting or characters. There aren't any. Even though the assembled cast are quality actors, they still need something funny or compelling to say. The script for this film is piffle. We've also got Alan Menken with its back again, and it yeah, with a solid the score. Music. And with its so- and the songs are still like they're again not super dramatic, not big, definitely not aiming for that Broadway musical feel. It's more but fun still, country. If, but, yeah, if, just, if anything, this film reminds me most of Cars. Actually, yeah. Come to think of it, this does have some Cars similar- similarities to it as well. A part of my appreciation for it again comes from a more meta level knowing of yeah, this was the the, where the studio was at the time, like knowing that at this point the remaining skeleton crew that was still at Disney after seeing all of their, after all of their friends had been laid off, all, all the other studios had closed the 3d like chicken little would have been up and in production and just knowing this was it and knowing that this was the end of it. I still look at the film and I see that they poured their all into it and they've got actually a lot of, good like of the great disney talent still left on that tiny crew like um uh will finn one of the co-directors is the was the uh animator behind cogsworth back on beauty and the beast uh supervising animators you got some great guys in there still you've got mark hen who is the princess animator guy he did bell and jasmine and mulan he's doing several characters in this you've got chris buck who was a long time animator throughout the renaissance and he co-directed tarzan he would eventually co-direct frozen You've got Dale Bear, the guy behind Yzma, and Russ Emmons, who had been supervising animator on secondary characters for the last like, 20 years at the Disney studio. There's a lot of amazing talent still left in that building working on one last thing together. Mm. And I don't think it is a coincidence that so much emphasis is put on the sadness and melancholy of seeing a beloved old farm on its last legs, failing to pay the bills, out of options, about to be foreclosed on. Oh, dude, now I... Oh. Now that, you've, now that you've put that meta commentary down there, I really wish this film had been better. Just when you actually look at it with that, just thinking about it like that, it is really, it becomes a much more, it adds yeah, an emotional root to the film that the film necessarily isn't even going for on its own terms, but it is still there because knowing that the studio was being shut down around them, that equipment and animation tables were being packed up and sold as they worked, that... Walt's traditional animation studio, which had come close to this fate like three or four times at least over the last 70 years, was finally going to ending as it had been, as we had known it up to this point, Uh. really adds a level of just slight meta meta melancholy to this that I really have a hard time ignoring while watching the movie. And knowing that despite that, I think they still made a fun little film with lots of really fun get lots of fun visual gags much more slapsticky and emperor's new groovy but uh one that is quite functional and small like a lot of the disney films used to be and yeah in the end like it's like i said it's not one of the disney classics it's not one of the greatest films but as a compared to what i expected this to be i actually like this quite a bit i should let you go now there's one joke in it 
the uh, one where Alameda Slim is looking at his map and he's got one of his lackeys is sitting there on a couch in front of it and he, he moves his head and Alameda Slim notices that there is a patch of map which he has not seen before and he has somehow managed to brand and, and buy up all the land on this map apart from this one patch which happens to be in the exact same shape <laughs> as his henchman's head and he's like, do you mean to tell me you've been sitting there every single time? This is my comfortable spot. That is so much better than every other joke in the entire film. I'm wondering who wrote it. Like, like maybe uh, uh, Chris Sanders uh, visited for a day and said, oh, hey, you could uh, do it like this. And they went, that's great. And they stuck that in the movie. And it doesn't fit with everything else, which is mostly animals getting hit in the head and screaming and running around and like running face first into cacti and laying eggs like they're pooping in excitement and pigs being little kids and barnyard puns. And, and, and I know that you and I also do have very different senses of like uh yeah tastes in animated comedy humor and i and I don't know where that like uh where exactly the borders of that of those differences lie, obviously we do have some comedy films we both adore, yeah yeah, of course. but uh some of this slapsticky simpler stuff, and like the cutesy little pigs that are really just heads on legs mm. and, and like I really adore their little cute <laughs> design and and the goofy comedy of this our main villain being really really defensive about his love for yodeling and the craft <laughs> yeah, see, the way you say it's funnier than how it was presented in the film <laughs> well, yeah, it, uh, agreed agreed but it's uh i know that part of my appreciation for this is I this is closer to a kind of comedy that I can en- that I enjoy in these films than it is for you and I and I even while watching it I had the sense that you and I were going to disagree on this one yeah but uh um, but yeah you're not wrong it's still not, there are a lot of gags that even for me don't stick or land like I think I don't I don't have a strong dislike dislike of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s horse character, but I, he also doesn't really make me laugh, and I don't end up caring much about him throughout most of it. Yeah. As so, uh, and I don't even dislike Cuba Gooding Jr. He just he feels like he's kind of going for a cronk-ish uh, type. A, a character, bit of a cronk, really. but also a donkey. Eddie Murphy in Mulan. Yeah, yeah. donkey, uh, the zebra in Madagascar, just that kind of a bombastic, loud character. But he's never actually funny. So. But yeah, without the without the like real like comedy to really back it up. But uh, but yeah, I, I should let you. I should let you two keep. T- Sharon, what do you think of this movie? I have so little to say <laughs> about Home on the Range. I that that Alex hasn't kind of already implied at least. Um, I think what frustrates me the most about it, and it. It didn't really hit me until we watched the the little backstage documentary about um, what they were thinking. What were they thinking when they put it together? Um, and but but in all honesty, that the ideas that they had behind where they wanted the story to go and the fact that they wanted this uh, to be about this trio of um, uh, female characters that went out and saved their 
uh, their home and in the Wild West specifically, which is not the home yeah, of female which characters. Is exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you know that they they would take this fight out there and and do what they could do, and that it would be you know the, their own special skills, particularly Grace uh, being able to to sort of rescue them from the the magical yodeling, which I actually thought was quite a nice little touch, although it did because... mean having to put up with Jennifer Tilly singing in yeah. order to plant it. Um, the gag is she's tone deaf, so she can't be hypnotized by this incredible yodeling so uh, yeah. she's got the power of um being immune indeed um but it was almost like that made me more frustrated by mm-hmm. it because it it should have been so much better than it was and the things that i think were the biggest hiccups for me was all the stuff that they seem to be trying to uh, to chase the tail of what DreamWorks was was in danger of putting out. Mm, yeah. uh, the, the slapsticky, um, you know, dumb jokes, silly humor, fart gags, burp gags. Uh, Don't forget yeah, burp burp gags. gags. They they open with a boob joke. Which got them a PG, <laughs> by the which way. Which is what apparently. Yeah, got them they're the real. Movie. Quit staring. Yeah. Um, Which is maybe the second best gag in the whole. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, but it's not that it. It's not so much that it doesn't feel like Disney, because ultimately Disney has flexed and changed so many times over the years that it would be churlish to say, you know, oh, well, Disney shouldn't be doing this kind of comedy. It's that it feels. It isn't like, recognisable as Disney though, despite having no, given but, it that. But what I was going to say was, it's it's the fact that it doesn't feel like they're doing it because they want to. It feels like they're doing it because an exec has given them a list of boxes that they have to tick to prove that what they're doing can potentially have the same appeal as what they're doing down the street. Oh, and the exact same film could have been made in 1978. It during that same kind of we don't quite know what we're doing patch. Yeah, see that I looked at the the year of release and I was like 2004. Really, it was that late. Yeah. It just it didn't feel. Like it, it possessed all of the lessons that they'd learned and the the talent that they'd accumulated over the years. Which, to be fair, from the sounds of things, it was all on the way out the door anyway. So that's probably why. When I first started um, watching it, I, I was imagining a conversation where it was like, "I have a Disney movie. You got a Disney movie. I have part of a Disney movie. What percentage? <laughs> I don't know. Twelve percent. That's barely even a concept. Just the I. It, it feels like." It was going to develop into something, or, or maybe just that if it, if it had had like a really like, so I, I don't want to like disparage the fact that you like the the um, goofball gags, Dan. No, but, but if I'm it willing... had like a Futurama level of cowboy script where it had been constantly like giving you a trope of westerns and then flipping it the whole way through, boom, boom, boom. Like, like if it had kept me laughing, I would have loved this film. I agree. They could have actually they without even breaking what they were doing. If they'd brought a little bit more of the smart Futurama kind of goofball yeah. sort of because uh, they are kind of having lots of jokes that are sort of more meta level gags about Wild West tropes and things like that. But they're not re- really smart ones. They're very they're very goofbally. Mm-hmm. And I do also a hundred percent agree that this film could be doing what it does better. Mm-hmm. It it could be a better film than this. And that's why I don't, re- and I don't regard it as one of the greats for that reason. Uh, what was the other thing that uh, occurred to me? Hang on a second. Oh, that was it. When we were watching the beginning of the film, 
Um, I was thinking, right, going in the other direction, rather than just making it funny, although they could they could have done that as well, to make this like a Pixar movie, back when Pixar were in their heyday, and from the sounds of it, and we're going to go see Inside Out tomorrow, they're back. Ooh, yeah, yes, uh, they are. Right now, Pixar's ratio is one out of every four films is a masterpiece, and that ain't bad. Right, you start off in the farm. You introduce like a, a really you know, idyllic, so like you show how beautiful it is in the countryside as you sweep through how colourful it is. You show the average day on the farm. It's not just dosy doing cows. Uh, like, like give us something to engage with. It should be funny and um, also you know kind of character driven. And then um, you should see the relationship between the, the the farmer lady Pearl. You show who she is and, and how she relates to the cows properly rather than just having a little quick dance and then like chuck some apples around and that's great. And you show how the farm works kind of like exactly what they did, but rather than like the rabbit getting bitten by the snake and running face first into a cactus and then running along and getting stuck in a cartwheel and going around and it's like all of that like gag gubbins, just draw us into the farm itself. Then uh, again, it's just refinement of the existing story. Uh, you have like we're all like looking forward to the big inspection from the blah 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 whatever, and um, like everyone, everything's got to go right, and then everything goes really wrong, and then um, it's like right, we failed the inspection. This place is going to have to be sold. So like all of these hopes about the farm just get dashed. And, and like, so the, so Pearl sort of walks away and sorry, girls sort of scratches their heads. And then the cows are left sort of distraught. Like, what are we going to do? Exactly the same situation, but in the Pixar style uh, and, and more modern Disney stuff, you get to engage to the point where you really want the farm to survive. And you're a bit more this, set up. Cause I mean, like what they want is just equilibrium. It's just for things to carry on going as they are. It's a really tough sell. Uh, in in terms of story, because it's it's just a farm, really. It's you have to show that this is worth it, so that they, when they go out on their adventure, that what they're coming back to is something that we ourselves want to be returned to. Uh, you know, to, we we need to feel it's threatened and that they can save it because it never feels like that. That makes sense to make us get attached to the equilibrium the cows want yeah. just as much as they are, so that we want that. For them as well. Yeah, I mean, in a sense. very simplistic way, that's exactly what happens. If you're a little kid watching, you're like, oh, I love those pigs. And the, the, you know, they're having apples. They're tossing corn on the cob around. It's great fun. Yay. But it's like the, it's, it doesn't go any further than that. And um, I'm, I'm holding this in high regard and saying, yeah, but this is just this is your basic story structure of how you draw people in and make them want this. Because ultimately, if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to try... You shouldn't really be a $110 million Disney movie that's the last 2D animated film in a very long line. It shouldn't have been like this, Dan. I I know you like it. Well, no, I agree. There there are lots of things about this film and its release that should not have been... But I mean, uh, even if it's things. just like the kind of film that just draws you, like I love the meta idea of like the farm is going, um, and and we've got to save it, and then it, it, you know, maybe at the end, maybe the farm does get sold, and maybe the cows go their separate ways, and there's this sort of really sad, lovely kind of like, okay, but we're going, we're never going to forget this. That would have been such a wonderful way to say goodbye to that style of animation. Yeah, I, I did wonder if they would actually go in that direction, and I'm not surprised they didn't, but I, I did for a moment wonder if they would have 
the gumption and gutsy, the gumption to go that direction and also had enough time enough foreknowledge early on in production to know that this is what they was going to happen to the studio and thus to work that into the story that who knows if they would have known early enough to really make that kind of change but still I wondered. I mean, I think ultimately, in retrospect, if, if all the Disney animators who uh, you know were around at that point or had been uh, relieved of duty were able to get in on it, and all the not just the animators, obviously the writers. This is this really comes down to the writing as well. This is it's it's Will Finn and John Sanford, um, and uh, Will Finn wrote what jesus i don't know if he had re- he was a uh i think both of them were uh animators in the studio until then sorry just I animators he... is a very cruel thing to say but ultimately it is a different job and he yeah. may have been involved in some of the story workings of previous films in a smaller way i'm not 100 percent sure on that but the but, uh, the, yeah. the structure of it, what we actually get, is it's, it's a series of episodic skits, basically. You know, they they travel from place to place. Eventually, they're kidnapped by this cattle rustler. They, there's a bounty hunter involved. It's all it's it's a big hullabaloo, uh, and it ends in a sort of a big. Uh, there's a great kind of psychedelic yodeling moment with lots of marching cows, and it's kind of resplendent of Dumbo and uh, the elephants on parade in uh, Winnie the Pooh. But it, it all just happens, and then it. it we save the farm, yay! And then it's over, which is not a story that's going to live with people. You know, no, if, if they'd lost the farm, maybe it's heartbreaking. Maybe that lives with people. So, you know, ultimately, I think in retrospect, if they'd known this was going to be the last one, they would have put everything into this thing. Instead, it comes off as, as very naive and just very like, let's just have a, a, a laugh and, and not realizing that this was the last laugh. Yeah, no denying that the the main cause of weakness of so many of these late era Disney traditional films was on from a story and a writing uh, on the story and writing front. Mm. So stuff that wasn't caught um, early enough. I mean, ultimately um, like we mentioned brother bear went through multiple iterations and we're thinking yeah. about what it could have been. And ultimately it needed one more stop. Let's have a think about this and focus uh, before they, you know, finally went to like putting the thing together. Yeah. And this one had two, I mean, this one had been in, uh, before it even went into full production and its current form had been in pre-production for five years as a yeah. project called Sweating Bullets that was like a Western retelling of the Pied Piper myth. But uh, it and it just wasn't coming together. And eventually, Finn uh, Will Finn and John Sanford were put were given the reins, and the old thing was pretty much scrapped entirely. But yeah, but yeah, and. Oh, I had another thought and I just lost it. Sorry. I kind of like the idea of sweaty, called Sweating Bullets and this being a really poorly translated title all the way around the world. Like, in, <laughs> like They mention this in the uh, documentary. Like, it, it would be called Bullets Coming Out of Your Skin in China or something. <laughs> uh, just anything other than what this actually is. But it, it frustrates me. I was wrecking my brains after watching it. For, like, we've just been talking about Jaws a lot. And there is a really fantastic dynamic trio of male characters in Jaws, uh, Quint Hooper Brody. And I was going, right, okay, can you tell me, Sharon, a film that is an adventure, not just a Steel Magnolias type film about sisterhood of traveling pants and cancer, but a film where three women have to affect change. And it's like a very close knit trio and we couldn't bloody think of one. And eventually, when we were watching the uh, extras, someone mentioned, this is like Charlie's Angels with cows. And I thought, Charlie's Angels, yeah. Why can't they do this right? 
this premise. Why can't you get three women in a film doing stuff? Since we recorded this show in 2015, we've had the 2016 Ghostbusters, which had four women in an adventure, and Ocean's 8, which had eight women in an adventure, and that one's actually really pretty good. Still no trios that I can think of. Many, many double acts. Most of them not fantastic. Although, Let Them Go, the gothic romance I wrote as the opener for New Century, features a central trio of women, the Wolverton sisters and their aunt Cleo. There was also a shot of them like doing their animation tests, and they were animating from life, and it was a cow. Maybe, maybe the most boring animal on planet Earth. I mean, One of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the most boring animal that's bigger than, say, uh, an insect or a sea slug or something like that. It's, I mean, the, to their credit, they made them dynamic and they, uh, they um, animated them with these sort of like gorgeous, crazy angles to them. Uh, again, they're like uh, caricature cows. And, uh, you know, they're, they're doing sort of kung fu kicks through the air and kicking bells. They made the, they pushed the cow as far as a cow could go. And I'll, I'll also warrant this is probably better than Barnyard. I don't know. I've never seen Barnyard. You seen Barnyard? I haven't. I haven't. But I really have a strong suspicion it's better than Barnyard. <laughs> <sighs> You'll have to forgive me, forgive us all, for what so far has been one of the weakest of the Disney series. And that's because there's nothing for us to get our teeth into. We do School of Movies because we feel joy of cinema. We, we want to feel passionately and strongly about film. And you know, if something's garbage, we can you know, say it's silly garbage and move on. But it, this is not just garbage. This was a defacement of Disney's heritage. And Disney is obviously a company that, depending on who you ask, are either the devil incarnate or a sign that something good exists in this world. And while we at Scholar Movies are very aware that they are indeed a faceless corporation, same as every other corporation, they have been, they are, and they remain the best of a bad bunch. Same as capitalism and democracy are the worst systems in the world, apart from all the others. Disney are and remain the ones for whom it is at least advantageous for them to be progressive, for them to push forwards, for them to learn and be better. No other corporation with this much power has families in mind as a main audience. We're well aware they want our dollars. But when you think about Fox, when you think about Universal, when you think about Comcast, Verizon, Time Warner, you know, Walmart, ExxonMobil, Berkshire Hathaway... None of these are companies that summon up in your head an image of a team of creative people who have had Disney in their lives since they were very small and it always meant something to them. There's no such place as New Line Cinema Land. There's no such thing as an NBC princess. Disney may have sharks at the top, but it is undeniable that they have hearts beating throughout. So I say again, we can't talk about Home on the Range not really, because it was an insult. It was insulting to the audiences. It was definitely insulting to the creators. It was 
shameful considering what they are capable of and always have been. So when we can't come from a place of joy, we come from a place of anger and that's what you've been experiencing. Quite a lot of anger and frustration in this episode. There's a lot of sadness in there too and according to the mixed emotions chart of uh, Inside Out, anger and sadness together equate to betrayal. But we're going to try and focus that now. We're going to talk about what was going on behind the scenes at Disney around about this time. I was going to suggest we talk about uh, Dream on Silly Dreamer a little. Yeah, I think we could do that. Because that uh, is very pertinent for this moment. It's a, it's a, a non-authorized, non-licensed Disney documentary. Uh, it's about 40 minutes long. You can get it on iTunes and various other places. Uh, it's uh, little chats with the ex-animators uh, from around about this era, talking about the, the, the final meetings they were having and the sort of right... Okay, so, uh, yeah, I've just been laid off, and uh, we're out in the autumn, and... The unthinkable. Hundreds of artists were kicked out of their home. A tradition was no longer appreciated. And there was nothing to say. Nothing to do. medium and there's so much more we could have done with it and the history of it you know with like Dumbo and I mean to this day like I think the most beautiful moment in any movie is when Dumbo is being crushed by his mother when she's being locked up and she's singing the little song to him you know baby mine but that's what people love is, is the sentimental they love to sit in the darkened theater and cry their eyes out because you know the elephants picked on Dumbo. <laughs> I can't see that as being an art form that's dead, you know? I see it as an art form that, you know, always should be because it's not the same um, doing it on a computer. It's just, you know, it, it, you ha- when you draw something out, there's just so much more you put into those drawings. Well, you do get a sense that people expect these kind of movies. Nobody has a problem uh, when they hear that, people's, uh, that uh, Disney is also now doing CG movies. Nobody seems to, oh, okay, that's interesting. But when you tell them there might not be movies like Jungle Book and Lion King and Little Mermaid anymore, they look at you in disbelief. No, no, they wouldn't do that. I said, well, for the moment, it looks that way. That's, that's how I put it. Well, I feel uh, really sad because uh, for the first time, it doesn't look good to me. And I, and I would hate to, to leave on this note. Uh, you know, I would like to leave with the audience applauding. And, uh, you know, leaving when because things are in the toilet and not doing well would, would seem sort of like the wrong time to leave. You want to you get it going again before you leave, you know? I'm still in denial. <laughs> I know it's going to happen. I know it's like the end of 
something pretty awesome. I, I think we've we created some, or we're part of something that um, is not very normal at all. I will do everything in my power to never go to the real world. Oh, well, it's still the best job in the world for me. And how many times have people said it? I, I get paid to sit down and draw. You know, how many people can say that? You know, that they sit down and do all day what they want to do, what they love to do. So sometimes I have to keep that in mind and be grateful for what I have had. And okay, we don't know where it's going, even though I, it's going to come back. I remember I was at the Oscar party with Andreas, and I just looked at him and I said, you know, Andreas, I go, I'm really going to miss you and I'm really going to miss this, but you know, for 10 years there, we had like a really great run. And I go, we really had some great times. And he just looked at me and he just started crying. And I was just like, oh my God, you know, it's gonna be over. So it was a whirlwind ride for the animators between the late 80s and the mid-2000s. They had these dizzying highs and these crushing lows. Sort of uh, slaloming between, you know, getting $100,000 bonuses circa The Lion King and just being told, right, you're all gone less than 10 years later. It's, 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 it is a depressing film to watch. It is, and I think it was... I think a lot of it was filmed and made very soon after those layoffs happened. I think yeah. possibly the layoffs that happened right before Brother Bear came out around 2002 or so when most of the Burbank studio was closed. Yeah. There's definitely a strong sense of that immediate hurt and sorrow and kind of confusion as to what's happening and a lot of resentment as well. That a sense is of betrayal, absolutely. And betrayal as well. And, and, and to be fair... It's it's warranted. It's, absolutely, yeah. Not... It was it was absolutely a time when there. I mean, the the documentary is not fair necessarily to the executives or other people in charge of the uh, yeah in charge of the studio, and it definitely doesn't it definitely doesn't have a fondness for the new era of of computer animation that is about to begin. Yeah, but I can completely understand the place they would be in at that point and I still really it is so sad seeing a studio with so much history and a team with so much talent just laid off and closed because it is not performing to its absolute best anymore or it's not bringing in the money it used to mm. but because the studio has become such a business and so business focused and it Lion King definitely isn't when it started but it's when the business angle of the Disney Animation Studio got pushed to the forefront when the executive or the executives in charge of things would have started getting I don't want to say that they were more involved because obviously Katzenberg and Eisner and all these guys were yeah, yeah. throughout the entire renaissance very much had their hands in the pie but I think in those earlier stages they were, they had their hands in the pie because they were trying to build something back up into greatness yeah. not necessarily capitalize on something that was already pulling in tons of money and try to wring every ounce of money they could out of it they were trying to build something into something profitable again and but once Lion King proved that they had succeeded from there it was just lots of bad short-term, uh, short-sighted decisions, releasing tons of 
really, really bad direct-to-video sequels. Yeah. To, just to try to capitalize on the success of a property. To a degree, I can still see this, because Pixar is a part of Disney, I can see this happening a little bit with Pixar as well, that Cars is... that. Cars keeps on getting pursued, and I know that that's also a passion project for John Lester. So yeah. it's there's there's that as well. But that uh, planes films are being released, and that just it's it's a thing that happens when business is so intimately tied with the with the animation with the animation art and story side of things, as it has been in every studio ever since the '90s Renaissance happened. Basically, yeah. this is just a reality of commercial 3D animated films these days and it it can be done well it can be done right to where the business does not interfere enough it doesn't interfere enough where the art and the story and all of those teams who are trying to craft a thing that will touch people emotionally are able to be isolated enough from that business side of things that they're able to work to their best and in the best and that is where the best animated films come from but that inside out absolutely is the kind of film that has not been noted to death by uh, by executives. Yeah, and uh, and I love that those still come out even in this sort of environment. But it's a puzzle. Having been through a uh, studio shutdown as well, mm. which while it is in most ways very very similar to this and how it went down and how it felt and all that, it doesn't have anywhere near the history like. Pixar Canada was a great studio. It was super sad seeing it shut down and all these great people getting sent off to work in other places. You, but that studio had been around for about four years. And it is, it's not the studio that started this entire, that turned this entire craft and this entire medium into what it is today. Yeah. And knowing that that history, having that history and seeing all of it wiped out for, to trace the new trend, which is a new which I appreciate them chasing the new trend it's the it's the one I work in yeah but it is even for everyone working in 3D and CG none of them wanted to see this happen to traditional disney animation it just seems like at that stage when it's it looks like 3D is ascending by all means embrace 3D but that doesn't mean throwing out 2D that Absolutely, they didn't have to. Basically, they could have done it alternate years, where they did a three D film on the odd years and a two uh, D film on the even years, or even just space out the two D films so it's one every three years if, if if they must. But the idea that this should just be thrown out with the light desks that anybody actually in the studio at executive level at the time had either the right, the power, the ability. These are all just words that basically mean that they could press the button to kill this. It's it's as wrong as wrong gets. Absolutely. And this isn't I'm, just because I love it. It's, it's because it's history and and the best kind of history, not like the horrible, oppressive kind of history. <laughs> the kind that, that, that inspires and can be kept and, re- and studied and has absolute relevance to all kinds of animation now. And yes, absolutely, there's some embarrassing shit in there. The centaur girl cut out of Fantasia. The depiction of Native Americans in Peter Pan. The Fuhrer's face. These are all things that Disney can point an arrow to and go, Wow, we were ignorant as fuck in the past. Let's not do that anymore, but let's learn from our mistakes. The reason it's wrong that any one man had the power to do this is because the history of Disney animation, the 65 years from Snow White 
to Lilo and Stitch. That is a body of work that is bigger than any one man, any one corporate decision. Same as George Lucas saying, oh, I don't want there to be any more Star Wars sequels. Star Wars was bigger than Lucas, as history made clear. There will still be the magical world stories after J.K. Rowling departs this earth. Some things are bigger than people, and Michael Eisner was in charge in 2002. And it's an important one for the company, even more so. That's yeah, it's their identity. I, I, mean, I'm, I am not a, uh, I am definitely not a business-minded person, and it may be that what I am thinking is, is is a poor business decision. But I am firmly of the belief that Disney should absolutely keep one production team of traditional animation working at all times, even yeah. if they're only able to release a new film every five years. Because even if it's tiny, even if they're only shorts. Yes. Absolutely. They Something that to... can be then built up again once people start to get hungry for it. Because that this is the company's identity. Disney has something that very few corporations enjoy, and that is love from people. Yeah. People love Disney. They look like they love Nintendo. And that is because Disney has created things. And the identity and the soul of that company are these traditionally animated Disney films that people multiple generations have grown up with and grown up loving. And even if that skeleton crew single production team loses you money every single time, if you're not investing tons and tons in it and you're not trying to make huge blockbusters and gambling tons of money, if you're just letting them work and make great little films, the Disney company pulls in so much money from its other efforts. Yeah, but You can afford and, it. And they make lots of the, things people yeah, love. Just on the residuals of one of their Marvel films, they could afford it. Exactly. And that's the thing. It's not that Disney doesn't make other things that people also love. People love the Marvel movies and people love the theme parks and people and love Wars. all kinds of yeah, and all kinds of stuff that Disney makes, but it's not what that stuff is not the face of Disney. These films and these characters and Mickey Mouse and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and Little Mermaid, these are the things that people these are the reasons people love Walt Disney as a company. Winnie the Pooh cost $30 million. That's the 2011 one. That's How much crazy. did John Carter cost? Let's just check, shall we? <laughs> Let's check, because we all know the answer to this one. John Carter, directed by the wonderful Andrew Stanton of Finding yep. Nemo. $263.7 million. Good gosh. And it made $284.1 million. Oof, man. And oh, let's let's look elsewhere, shall we? The Lone Ranger, also Disney, starring Army Hammer, two hundred twenty-five million dollars made two hundred sixty, so it actually lost tons of money. So those two bloated pigs, it's just south of five hundred million dollars, half a. So I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. Half a billion dollars on these wretched pieces of rubbish. And uh, how many Winnie the Poohs could you make for that? Oh, Let's man. check, shall we? <sighs> 16. Oh, man. Yeah, folks. It That's the way it goes. It wouldn't even necessarily require a massive um, personnel investment because I think one of the things that frustrates me when they go on about... Um, well, Winnie the Pooh didn't even lose the money. It made $44 million. Not incredible, but it still made more than the $30 million it cost. So that's more profit than John Carter made. Yep. <laughs> and more than... Well, it's more than the Lone Ranger lost. And, and in more so also in a 
just in a further business sense, in merch, because Winnie the Pooh merch is one of the most profitable merchandise brands Disney owns. John yeah, Carter it, merch, not exactly flying yeah, off <laughs> people, Yeah, people don't even remember John Carter anymore, other than it's that, oh yeah, that disappointing movie. If you want to get somebody gender-neutral baby stuff, Winnie the Pooh. Oh, can't go wrong. Yes. Can't go wrong with Winnie the Pooh or the Lone Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing. Like, it's... I can't remember what exactly order their most profitable merch stuff is, but the top four are princesses, car, car, princesses for young, generally aimed at young girls, cars, which is aimed at young boys, uh, general Mickey Mouse, uh, Disney brand type stuff, and Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Because yes, Winnie the Pooh is absolutely the babies, toddlers, young kids of all of all genders of all kinds. That is the like the their most successful merchandising product. So even just keeping the brand alive with a really inexpensive, great little Winnie the Pooh movie keeps that going and puts so much and keeps that merch going. So it's a good business decision. So you could make feasibly a, if they hadn't done those blah, blah, blah too, um, all of those horrible straight to video movies, you could have done like a Robin Hood sequel, you know, the, the, the Fox Robin Hood. Yeah, they could. Sorry, you could have done. They could have done another Rescuers film. And quite apart from hypothetical sequels that already nobody wants to see because of all those video versions. Thank you again to Michael Eisner, a man who never failed to undervalue the importance of 2D cell animation. How many original stories with modern day sensibilities, but a classical animation style, could their creative team come up with in just a couple of decades? Looking at how inexpensive these are, this is like a tax write-off for Disney, practically. The, the, oh, no, the it's, it's, that's like a, that's the, uh, the marketing budget of another film. It's like even just the film side of Disney aside, Disney is an enormous corporation with their fingers in many pies. They're one of the biggest entertainment, just mega giants in the world. The existence of even a large traditional studio is a tiny little blip on their radar in terms of finances. So keeping a small skeleton crew would just be just like couch change for them to maintain. And I don't understand why they don't make that effort to do it. Because even if it is not directly profitable, it adds so much value in terms of just branding yeah. branding alone from a business perspective and from an art perspective which is the one i really care about it keeps this tradition that disney built from the ground up into the biggest the like one of the biggest entertainment things in the world it keeps it alive and they keep on and they just they keep that art form going mm. so well, that yeah it can come back if that little small skeleton crew just makes one film that resonates with people again that becomes weirdly hugely successful that they've got all the tools they need and they can just build it start investing more and more money into it so they can make more or when uh, uh, Hullabaloo turned up on uh, Indiegogo, this is the uh, the steampunk shorts uh, that uh, it was a project from many previous Disney animators. I, I know that there was probably going to be some uh, uh, choppy waters under the bridge um, with these guys and Disney. But if Disney had turned up on day one, the moment it had launched and gone, right, uh, 80,000 goal, here is $80,000 just as a, a goodwill gesture. Go make your fantastic movie, and uh, would you like to do a feature-length one? 
Yeah. Just, I mean, it made $470,726, 25 of which were ours. And, <laughs> and that's that's fantastic turnout. It's not like Avengers turnout, but it, it, it shows that people adore this stuff so that even obscure things like this can get noticed to that degree. This is stuff, and here's the thing, this is stuff that doesn't need to be super popular, but it needs to be. Agreed. This is not think something that could just sort of turn up every... Like, it's not like Batman that can turn up and then go away and turn up and go away. And, like, you know, that in, in 20 years, if Batman hasn't had a movie, not bloody likely, but if it were, if in 20 years, if it, if it didn't, you could do another Batman movie, you know, straight off the cuff. But to do 2D animation of the level of, say, The Lion King requires, rather, like, a, a really carefully set up and put together team who have to have been dedicated to this for several years. You can't just like click your fingers, throw money at it, and then suddenly it happens. You have to get this team together. You need the infrastructure. So it, it is something that needs to be husbanded. Cultivated. And Disney have not only the heritage, but the means. If nothing else, do they still teach 2D animation at the... Um, did Disney still have that art school? I don't know if they have an internal 2D art school. I doubt that they do, but 2D animation is still taught in various art schools, and Disney has still still does employ at least a few of the old uh, Renaissance greats. Like I know Mark Henn still works at the Disney Studio, and he doesn't he's not animating necessarily, but he is in an advisory role, and he is a resource that the current computer animators can go to and just pick his brain and just glean wisdom from and uh, just because the craft is still the same even if we're using a different medium the craft of animation remains absolutely the same and the same principles apply so uh, somebody with his expertise and his history can still teach an animator like me a ton and so having people like him around is super valuable uh, until uh, about a year or so ago Glenn Keane was still at the studio uh, in, the, in a similar capacity I think Eric Goldberg was also at least for a time mm. um, and for a long time they still actually had until about 2013 they either had continued to employ or they brought back for Princess and the Frog and such a lot of the old greats like Nick Ranieri and uh, uh, Ruben Aquino and several of those other great uh, Renaissance era animators I think a lot of them have been let go since and I don't know if that's because they've just shuttered all their 2D plans again or because those guys are just really expensive to keep around. But I sincerely the hope question, they kept the light desks at least. Like, like there's a, a closed-off wing of the Disney um, studios, which, I mean, they can afford to keep that stuff on ice, surely. They can. I, I, yeah, I, surely they have. I, I hope so. But, but yet yeah, the point remains, they would still have lots of resources still internally for the for a fresh batch of animators to learn from. And, and the craft is, again, hardly dead. It, it still is alive in other parts of the world. Maybe not to the same in the same style or to the same level of craft as Disney animation, but it still exists, and I can't see it completely dying off. But, but you're also right, Alex, that it takes a well-oiled team, like a well-oiled machine of people who are experts at what they're doing and 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 really good at working together because you really do need a really tight team to pull these films off and that is something that 
unless Disney keeps it alive, is going to be really hard to build back up again. You mean you feasibly they could do it, but they would have to basically go, right, we are now taking applications for a new 2D animation team. This is our five-year project. By the end of that five years, we will have a new team of animators who really know what they're doing, and we will have one great movie on our hands, and we'll be on our way to the next one. But it, that would take... Some and uh, someone new to management who would still be here in five years to basically set that in motion, and I don't know what else it would actually take to actually convince the the Disney that the the purse string holders to go. Yeah, we're going to invest in that again because Snow White. Yeah, no, it's it's hard to guess at what it is going to take for this to happen. I do still hold out hope that traditional animation at Disney is going to make its return at some point. I mean, so, so like after uh, really soon after Brother Bear came out, uh, Roy Disney ended up resigning from the company and from outside the company began a Save Disney campaign to try to force Eisner out, which he had actually done before in, in 1984 as well, which is when they brought Eisner in, I think. Hmm. And one of the big reasons he did that was like one of his biggest complaints was the way that Disney Animation Studios was being handled and also the way that Eisner had let relations with Pixar turn sour because at the time things were really tense between the companies. Yeah. Uh, the Pixar's contract with Disney was about to end and it was looking like they may not renew if Eisner didn't do something to try to to solve to fix that relationship because he and Steve Jobs were just butting heads like crazy. And Roy's campaign eventually succeeded and Bob and uh Eisner retired, and he it set things up for Bob Iger to take over as CEO, and that is what started paving the way for Disney Animation to start making its slow recovery, along with Lasseter and Catmull being brought in and taking some leadership charge over the existing Disney studio. I am hoping that... I don't know what's keeping that sort of thing from happening again. I don't know who would be... I don't know who's not making the push right now at Disney for keeping traditional animation alive or who is maybe standing in the way of that happening. So I don't really know what need would need to change for that. They to don't be fixed, exactly publicize that stuff. They do keep it very quiet and they, they even when they let go a lot of those old animators in 2013, they really did try to keep quiet about it and they don't outwardly say whether or not they're done with 2d animation, but we know they're not working on anything. And if they don't have plans to work on something, then that effectively means for now they're done. I wonder if that would be because their shares would drop by so-and-so points with people, basically traditionalists going, well, if you're not going to be doing 2d animation, I don't want to know. Yeah. I think, I think they do want to avoid the um, PR hit that seeing 2D, especially because yeah, that would be headlines, wouldn't it? Disney say it, oh, it no totally more 2D, would. no, and there oh. would like there'd be pictures of of uh, of Cinderella looking really really sad in her tattered gown, <laughs> oh, and they'd totally be like would. goodbye to all this, and I'd then everyone say, would go, we all love this stuff. Oh, do you? Do you love this stuff? Is that why you all turned <laughs> up for Winnie the Pooh, you bastards? <laughs> it's probably not as cynical as as share drops. I think it's probably just they don't. You know, never say never. They don't want to say we're putting a cap on this. It's never happening again. Ultimately, as you say, Dan, it's as a skill set. It's not going away. Three um, D animators still need have to have a grounding. I'm assuming in in the ability to draw. So you know that's something that they can feasibly kill kill themselves. Kill kid themselves. <laughs> They can feasibly kid themselves. This is that litigious they can... now, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> Love what I meant. 
um, they could feasibly kid themselves that this is something that they can come back to at any point without having to kind of keep up the investment in it in the interim. Yeah, I, I think you're right that in not declaratively saying this is the end of this, they're not bringing in all the negative PR that would bring because it's obviously wasn't going to wouldn't be a positive. PR and even if they did it. say it's not the it's the end of this, they're, they're just management. Ultimately, they're just whoever's in charge right now. 20 years from now, a crazy tycoon could basically own it. Who's like, I have always wanted to see Disney doing 2D animation again. You know, yeah. it basically just takes one business move for this to be back up again. But ultimately, the, the, it's, it just takes for the longer, longer time for people who were not right. Because if you think about it, kids who were raised on Disney in the 90s are now in their 20s or yep. 30s, early 30s tops. Um, and and so really, you know, when you get to tycoon age, there's only a, a certain amount of time for, for you know, since the last uh, kid uh, who went to see The Lion King and then grew up into Uncle Moneybags from Monopoly to actually have that romantic idea of what Disney should be like. Yeah, it's true. There are a lot of kids growing up now who have not lived in a time when mm. traditional animation was Disney's big thing and where there was a new one coming out every year and it was a thing of it and was a reason to get really excited. I mean, and even I we, like Sharon and I, when we were growing up, that wasn't the case for us. It was like Disney. Yeah, there was, this is that company that used to do really, really great films. And then The Little Moment came out. Yeah, and, and I don't know if traditional animation can ever take that crown back. I and mean, it's frankly, it's not the only game in town anymore, so it, maybe it shouldn't. But I do think it could still live on in its current form. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not wanting this to be all doom and gloom because the fact is disney animation is back in a very big way right yeah, now yeah and they are making we don't want to diminish the absolute stuff. quality of say tangled and frozen and wreck it oh, ralph yeah. and big hero six these are fan bloody tastic movies absolutely it's really just the lamenting of a old tradition that the studio was built on that does have its own unique charm and history that it is very sad seeing that it the idea of that not being a part of Disney's future is very sad. It seems like it was too easy to let go of and isn't being pursued like it should yeah. be. You know? Agreed. Um, I, will that do for this era? Because next we've... Next we're breaking out the big guns. <laughs> or the yep. small guns. Which is it? Basically, I am, I am going to go full on the attack on Chicken Little. And uh, I, I, I do like the end of Meet the Robinsons. And Bolt is incredibly bland. <laughs> no, you don't need to listen to them. <laughs> yeah, we're done. <laughs> That's pretty much a good summary. Anything else to be said about Home on the Range or this era of Disney? I I don't think so. I think I think we have adequately covered both the highs and the lows of this long, long wonderful, mostly sometimes not as wonderful period. Yeah. And now we get to start the slow rebuilding through, despite some really bad growing pains. <laughs> So yeah, stick around for part two of this podcast, Chicken Little. What if you found out the sky was falling? Would you tell anyone? Would you be scared? Maybe even a little. Chicken? Ow! November 4th. A piece of the sky? Not again! The sky is falling! 
something really big is going down. What's that noise? Sorry. Nervous eater. Walt Disney Pictures presents... Come on, Dad. We've got a planet to save. Rock me a little hit. Okay. Okay. Chicken Little. Look, Mama, there's the crazy chicken. Yes, it is crazy little chicken. You're so smart. We don't make eye contact. Bye-bye. Abby Mallard, a.k.a. Ugly Duckling. Yeah! By the way, I'd like to say I've always found you extremely attractive. Fish out of water. Fish, are you okay? <laughs> don't don't tap the glass. They hate it when you do that. Runt of the litter. I can't handle the pressure. Where, where's your bag? Where, where's your bag? Oh, no, oh, Mocupine Porcupine. Yo. Buck Cluck. Son, there's something I want you to know. What then? In about three seconds, I'm going to scream like a little girl. Turkey Lurkey. Hurry! Oh, look! A penny. Guys! Oh, right. This November. Yeah, it's, uh, uh the last quarter of this trailer is is, 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 a, is a disco gag that that's it the chicken the chicken thing is dancing some heroes are born great others have greatness dropped upon them Disney's chicken little well at least we can sell the video to chickens gone wild welcome to the shark tale of Disney movies. And while we have to talk about a film that is entirely lacking in brilliance, we want to thrill you nonetheless, so we shall be accompanied on the mandolin and guitar by the great Django Reinhardt. Next on the chopping block is Chicken Little from 2005. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of baggage is going to come with this one. So that if you if you folks remember the last time we talked about uh, Home on the Range, wasn't it? That's the one. And uh, it's been a while, Dan. It has like. been. been many many months since uh, since we were away, and uh, and the landscape for Disney has entirely changed. Do you by any chance have some information on what had gone on behind the scenes? I do. So. <laughs> There's going to be a major turning point after Chicken Little. It's right around the time of uh, uh, Meet the Robinsons, which I think will set Disney on the course to where we are now. But as of Chicken Little, we are before that point. Development on Chicken Little had started back in 2001, before Lilo and Stitch even came out. So uh, Disney had already been positioning themselves for this transition to 3D for some time. It was conceived and pitched and directed by Mark Dindle, who also did Emperor's New Groove and Cats Don't Dance, which are both much better films. If you have to choose one of these three movies to watch, watch one of those other two. Disney was in a really interesting place around the time Chicken Little came out. So the 3D animation department was now fully operational, and the 2D department was now completely closed with all of the staff either training to work on 3D films or just laid off. So they're already going through a major transition. But on top of that, Disney's relationship with Pixar was on the rocks because their distribution contract that they had originally set up was almost over and the negotiations over the renewal of that contract were really tense at this point. In fact, Pixar was already shopping around for other distributors. They were probably going to jump ship. And what this ultimately means is that Disney needed Chicken Little to be successful, but not just to prove the merit of switching to computer animation, but also to win themselves a little more bargaining power in these negotiations. Because if they could make mm. a hit 3D animated film themselves, that would 
at least help them make a bit of a stronger case for retaining the rights to distribute Pixar's vastly superior at this time films. Yeah. So they would be able to say, we don't even need you. We're going to start our own casino. Yeah, exactly. Or we can, they With can at least say With blackjack and hookers? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. It's also worth noting, and this will come heavily into play as we start talking about the film itself, that mm-hmm. this movie also represents the height of executive meddling in Disney filmmaking. It's been a, mm-hmm. it's been a trend that's been coming along ever since uh, Eisner and Katzenberg came in and kind of brought the Hollywood style to Disney animation. But at this point, there was an actual policy dictating that it was mandatory for notes from higher ups to be addressed or implemented. Like not even Mm -hmm. just talked about, like if a note came down, you had to address it, period. And that is poisonous. In to art, film. absolutely. Yeah, and you can see the negative impact plain, plain as day when you watch this, and we'll talk more about it then. But it's th- this is one of the things that, uh, as soon as Lassiter came in, this is one of the policies that was abolished outright. But mm. and you can see why when you watch this. At the time of recording, Jonathan Lassiter had not yet been relieved of his post for playing grab-ass habitually among the halls of Pixar Studios, the revelation of which crushed, disappointed, and disgusted all those who had looked up to him for decades as a great creator, a great studio head, and a decent man. Okay. Uh, am I, am I good to go? Take it away. Okay. I'm going to try not to make my voice sound angry and dark. <laughs> Good luck. Okay, so let's uh, okay, just calm myself, just like sort of like disengage ever so slightly, but not too much. Access the passion without getting nasty. <laughs> okay, because for me, it is impossible to separate this movie, Chicken Little, from the metatextual impact of what this movie represents. The film itself is a stupid, shallow, screaming animal fest from the mid-2000s, and it's no more puerile or offensive than Over the Hedge or Hoodwinked or Open Season or Barnyard or B-Movie or Ant Bully or Flushed Away or Shark Tale, and it similarly has nothing at its core. It's just a colorful distraction for children where nobody walks when they could run and nobody runs when they could run into a wall or fall over or get beamed upside the head in some other way. Nobody talks when they can scream, and nobody has anything going on that isn't directly linked with the film's plot or some cheap throwaway joke. As with all of the above films, the animation is uninspired and uninspiring, cheap-looking, forgettable, and looks horribly dated by today's standards. But here's the thing. This wasn't just any old bad movie. This was the animated film that followed the closure of Disney's 2D animation wing for good. Their last film had been the unsuccessful and unpopular Barnyard Caper, Home on the Range, and it was decided by those in charge that this failure, along with the more expensive high-profile flop Treasure Planet, that the sun had set on the era of this style that Disney had brought into the world of cinema on a scale that no other studio could match. I was watching Dream on Silly Dreamer, and... um, one of the artists was talking about the, which is a really depressing 40-minute short um, documentary about the um, the aftermath of this, well, just, just what was going on at the time and then the closure and these incredibly dejected, miserable animators at the, exactly this time we're talking about and how little hope they held for the future as these, these the Burbank studio and, and Japanese studio were all being shut down at once. 1,300 people lost their jobs. There was a direct quote of, one guy said, let's just stop doing these. Meaning films like Aladdin. (laughs) 
riffraff, street rat. I don't buy that. If only they'd look closer. Would they see a poor boy? No siree. They'd find out there's so much more to... Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. That one person had the power to do that is frightening. While they have in recent years managed astonishing beauty and delicacy in Frozen and Tangled and wonderful adventures in Wreck-It Ralph and Big Hero 6, The Princess and the Frog and Winnie the Pooh were experimental attempts to reignite this form of artwork and they did not succeed. While it's churlish of me to blame Chicken Little for the lack of interest from general audiences in cell animation, it is the first bastard child of a studio that had lost its way in a manner that has left this filmmaking discipline on a grand scale effectively dead now. It is such a wretched swap. The bag of sand that Indy exchanges for the Golden Idol. No other film has been so emblematic of the departure of something so important, so precious and so beautiful. The Last Airbender pretty much put pay to any further Legend of Ang movies. Batman v Superman has continued to drive into the grimy dirt DC's pantheon of heroes. But even that is already prompting a rethink in their approach because it wasn't well received. And that's what happens when things are not well received. You rethink it and you try again. The Star Wars prequels were eventually countered by The Force Awakens to bring that series back to life. Chicken Little drowned the Little Mermaid, hunted the Beast, shot the Lion King, banished Mulan, caged Tarzan, Chicken Little shoved the apple down Snow White's throat, smashed the glass slipper, smothered Sleeping Beauty with a pillow, stamped on the rescuers and had Pongo put down. Chicken Little shoved the genie back into his lamp forever. I'm not exaggerating here. I may be using grotesque imagery to make my point, but Disney destroyed their light desks. They fired their animation team, some of whom had been there through the entire 90s third renaissance, and raced to bring in other animators with their new discipline to fill that void. This is not something that could be callously cast aside and picked up again in 10 years like Spider-Man or Batman after bad movies. This is an animation discipline that needs to be studied for a lifetime to reach these heights. It needs a steady flow of masters and students and the veterans in between. It needs a cycle, one which lasted from Snow White to Home on the Range. And now, over a decade later, if Disney wants to start again, they are going to have to get the band back together in a way that is powerful and a statement of intent for the future, whilst being considerate of their new lives and careers, some of which have already ended. This may not even be a thing that can be done, and the more time that elapses, the less knowledge there is in the world to be passed on to the young and the hungry. I have nothing to say about Chicken Little, it's worthless garbage, annoying and boring. But what it represents, the confluence of events and decisions made, is the death of something of vital importance to us, historically and culturally. It was thrown together quickly to tick boxes for audiences that were held in contempt. In a move motivated by an irrational panic and a fear of obsolescence, that now that Disney owns Marvel and Star Wars, seems ludicrous to conceive. Another really good quote was, you've got the London Philharmonic Orchestra at your disposal and you're turning the studio into a boy band. Something with marketing at the core. 
At the time, DreamWorks were doing gangbusters with their wisecracking animal comedies with references to Justin Timberlake and American Beauty that would date immediately. Slapstick for the kids, references to trendy pop culture for the parents. These were not footsteps to follow in. Pixar had been hugely successful due to their wonderful storytelling abilities, vibrant, memorable characters, and adhering to quality. Ultimately, Disney did follow in these footsteps and now are virtually indistinguishable in style. Big Hero 6 looks and feels like Brave, which looks and feels like The Rise of the Guardians. What died with the baleful entrance of Chicken Little, which has only reappeared briefly in a flicker of a few times since to remind us more sharply just exactly what has been lost is Disney's distinctive look. Disney are, in effect, patrons of the arts. Any artist with the requisite funds can acquire the tools and materials to paint in almost any style. And that means that every discipline we have ever mustered as a species can be brought back, dusted off, and re-explored as a painting. But this is animation on a grand scale. Disney paid their artists money they could get nowhere else with this remit of excellent, timeless films, no matter how often they fell short of the mark. This animation is too expensive for individuals or even small groups to afford on their own. They need studio clout from a place with a heritage that celebrates and reveres the achievements of its past with as much overuse of the term magic as Disney does. Some things transcend coin. This was one of those things. Its importance cannot be charted and its loss to generations hence cannot be adequately mourned. The next movie Disney put out in their animated classics canon was The Wild, farmed out to a studio named Core Feature Animation, directed by, this is absolutely true, his actual credited name, Stephen Spaz Williams. Oof. A quick fix, Finding Nemo clone with a lion and a giraffe straight out of Madagascar, starring Kiefer Sutherland and Eddie Izzard that everybody has now forgotten. It isn't even observed by the American numbering system of the classics canon, only the British who eschew dinosaur for murky and unexplained reasons. The damage was done, and words alone cannot express my cold loathing for Chicken Little and everything it signifies. falling thing once and for all. And then my dad will finally have a reason to be proud of me. So what did you guys think of Chicken Little? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm so sorry to start with such a down note, but Jesus Christ. No, that was actually good. And for old time's sake, so you didn't like it then. Well caught. Well caught, sir. So I am so glad I didn't see this when it came out, actually. Because, <sighs> like, now I know there's a happy ending to the Disney story. But at the time, this would have been heartbreaking. Mm. It's the same reason that at the time, and I really should give it another chance, I didn't like Enchanted that much. Because I was still really upset over hand-drawn Disney films going away, just because I'd like grown up with them and I'd been inspired with them. I really loved them. And as far as I knew, they were never going to happen again. 
and I, we're kind of back in that state now, like you said, but seeing the intro to that film and not, and not realizing there was going to be a whole 2D animated sequence to start it out and getting just like sucked in and like remembering, oh my gosh, I didn't think this was ever going to happen again. This is beautiful and wonderful. And then that part of the movie ends and the rest of the film is kind of lampooning old uh, Disney tropes and in a wonderful way, like Amy Adams is perfect and the movie is actually really nice. But at the time, it really just felt like dancing on the grave of a thing I loved and I just could not get into it. But same thing for Chicken Little here. Like it, this would have been devastating to watch at the time. Now it's yeah. just frustrating and awful. It is. Capital F, capital I. Sharon? Ooh. Uh, what can I say? There is so little to say about this film. I mean, I, I did, like, a, a handful of notes just to remind me of a couple of points I wanted to make about, um, about Bolt and Meet the Robinsons. I had nothing for Chicken Little. I... I was looking at it and I was trying to find a core of story and visual narrative and something. But it's like they took... Okay, I will say this. There's a beginning sequence where they they riff on how traditional Disney films have opened in the past. So they go, once upon a time, and oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. We, we always do that. We want to start with something different. And then they do um, uh, the the book opening, you know, that, that wonderful little, and now we are entering the world of story that was at the beginning of a lot of the, the um, golden age Disney stuff. No, 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 that's, yeah, you've seen the book a hundred times. Nobody wants to see that. They even, don't they, they nudge off the, Palace. Oh yeah, the lion, the lion king's in the middle. Ah, so when yeah, a masterpiece, That's it. and they go, ah, no yeah, absolutely. No, no, no one wants to see that. Ma- this whole intro thought- sequence is for kids who are checking their cell phones already. Screw not, that no. mentality and screw those audiences. This is this is not for kids. This is this that intro sequence. That's not for the target audience. Well, I mean, it is. It's for their new target audience. But that is the the cynical, older teenager, young adult. I'm really not interested in Disney films. Then why the hell are you even in this theater? What's the point? in courting a market that is not interested in you, has never been interested in you, has plenty of their own stuff hanging around. It would be like me changing the next New Century book to basically make it a Fifty Shades of Grey style. And it's like, hey, you ladies who like your Fifty Shades of Grey, read this instead. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) You, But but like you said- That's basically so cynical. If you look at what what Disney are, they're not, or at least what they what they were and what they had the opportunity to be again. It's not just a case of they made movies. It's the um, like you say, it's the it's the discipline that they were offering about the only paying job at one point, where if you were an animator or if you wanted to be an animator. Disney was it. That was where you could go and work. They had a college, and I'm, I'm assuming they still do. 
I'm, I'm the, sure they have the tons the Disney art of school still running? You know, I'm not actually sure. I mean, I'm sure they've probably got some partnership work with CalArts and other local schools. I don't know if they have an internal mm. actual school college thing there. Lots of training yeah. resources, but, I'm sure. Yeah, but like Alex said, it's that, um, that history, that unbroken line of they train people up from the bottom and eventually they get to the top of their game and then they're teaching the, the new people that come on to do the basic level stuff. Um, and, you know, we're over-romanticizing this a lot and I'm certain that there's an awful lot of, of things that went on and practices that were less than ideal, but ultimately throwing the baby out with the bathwater like this and saying, you know, we've overspent on that. We're going to chuck all of this out. We're going to we're going to basically look at the market and say, where can we make money? And okay, this is the demographic that we're going to target. What do we have to do? What boxes do we have to tick to appeal to this particular demographic? It, and and I don't. No, go ahead. Sorry. I I, I was just going to say I don't. I was going to say I don't understand why. I do understand why. It's depressing why because it it's the it's the money bottom line. But what was lost that when because like Alex was saying once you break that cycle you can't get it back again. Once all of the animators that had that skill are gone I mean people are going to have to come in and learn it from scratch if they decide that they ever want to go back to that. Yeah. So that is the frustrating part of this is that if you look at this strictly as business, just ignore any, like, just think of animated films as just a product and you are a business person. The frustrating thing is, is that they kind of ended up being right. And that is brutally painful because, all right, so if a film is, an animated film is just a product, the products that Disney had been releasing had been losing more and more money and competitors had surfaced and Disney hadn't had major real competitors before. Competitors mm. have surfaced with a new thing that is very different from what the old classic Disney product has been, and they're being big hits. They're super successful, and that trend continues for years and years. And so as a business, if you're looking at your old product that is not selling nearly so well anymore, and competitors have arisen selling a new thing that audiences love, the it makes sense from a business standpoint to pivot, try to bring your own version of that new thing, and try to actually compete again. And looking at the performances of even the newer 2D films that came out compared to the 3D films they started releasing and are releasing now to enormous success they mm. kind of ended up being right and that's kind of, and that's if you are if you then stop looking at animated films as just a commodity it's heartbreaking tangled did better than the princess and the frog and, and frozen put them both to shame yes uh mm. pe people just didn't really weren't all that excited or fussed about princess and the frog it, it might it may have been marketed wrong or felt like a throwback to them and winnie the pooh which as you said before dan was released on the day one of the deathly hallows films came out Yeah, the last one sent you sent Pooh out to die. Did he get a cigarette and a blindfold? <laughs> That's but something I, think... I, should, I should never have had to see. <laughs> Sorry, Dan. In an episode of Red Dwarf, Winnie the Pooh really is put to death. That just reminded me of that. Oh, dear God. But the... the um, 3D animation... And see, this is something as well, if you, if you look at it from a distance, is, is even more frustrating in a, in a way is that 3D animation for a very long time, and even now, still isn't quite seen as proper animation. It's not the, the skill that's required 
um, in that particular discipline is only just really starting to be recognized for, for what it can be and what it can achieve. And what Pixar were doing so fantastically well from the word go was not the 3D animation, it was the story, it was the heart, it was the character. So for Disney to turn around and say, well, we want to succeed with what they're doing, we're going to basically use what paint they're using and hopefully, I mean, what did they, did they think 3D computer graphic imagery was the magic paintbrush, that they could just use that particular tool and all of a sudden everything would be magic and wonderful? If you look at the original Toy Story as it was going to be, remember with the really mean Woody? Mm -hmm. um, like if Toy Story had emerged, that first one, with that storyline, <laughs> but the original Toy Story art, there is no way Pixar would have, have gone on to do the films that it did. No. It, 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 people would have gone, ugh, this is horrible. And it would have taken another studio to do something really. Like maybe people would have gone crazy for ants. Or, you know, ultimately when Shrek came out and cocked an enormous green snook at Disney, people lapped that up like pigs under a cow's udder. I'm desperately trying to come up with a cover band joke for Mean Woody, but I can't. <laughs> Woody Harrelson has his own band, doesn't he? There you go. That'll work. There you go. So, like, going into this but, movie, and I hadn't seen it before, and I was I was prepared to give it a fair It shake. should be called Mean Woody Toy Story is what Chicken Little is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, like, I, I wanted to give this movie a fair shake because it had been more than 10 years since it came out. I have more or less made peace with the era of mm. Disney 2D mm. being at an end. I wanted to at least try to appreciate it on its own merits. And, I mean, yeah. I ended up liking Home on the Range, so, like, who knows? True. And, and for, like, the first five or ten minutes, I was kind of on board because it's not... It's not great. The animation's really rough in places. The acting is really overly busy and loaded with every cliched choice you can think of. The cinematography's pretty bad. The, the art design's actually kind of fun, but thanks to the lighting and the rendering tech they've got, it's just not a great-looking movie. I don't, I don't think it's they'd have a really great-looking Disney 3D movie until Bolt. But, I mean, the opening gag with the Once Upon a Time thing, while mean-spirited, if I'm, if I'm not... If I'm just kind of divorcing myself from the overall context, it is, it's kind of funny and it's fine. After those initial minutes, though, just the longer I watched, my patience just disappeared. <laughs> like, you know that feeling when you watch a movie and you can't remember it like an hour after you get out? Yes. I, I, felt, I felt like I was forgetting Chicken Little in real time. <laughs> <laughs> What's to forget? Nothing happens! And this movie goes for the gag at literally any cost. Like, is is there something more important that the audience needs to be focusing on right now? Doesn't matter. Is the gag tonally appropriate? Doesn't matter. Does the gag fit the fictional universe they've established? Doesn't matter. Will the reference be dated five months before the movie comes out? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Is the gag... We got a Lewinsky joke in there. <laughs> yeah, like, is the gag even all that Something funny or clever in the first place? It, like, Shrek has references and gags, therefore we must reference and we must gag. There's And we did. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> Seriously, this act Sharon can attest this actually like brought up my my, my sick trigger started like the, <laughs> to activate just watching this. I felt ill the whole way through. And that um I mean I I I I, I disagree on that opening gag being kind of funny i just immediately went oh f you <laughs> no, I, I completely, I completely understand that feeling 
absolutely. Yeah. But uh, and that's the thing—you can't it's excuse basically this. like a horrible shoplifter coming in and smashing up something of beauty and saying, "I own this shop now." Yeah, it's and you can't excuse the quality based on the era either. Pixar had just released The Incredibles. It's not like the technology wasn't there or something. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, the opening chaos, loads of animals running around screaming, it reminded me more of one film than any of the others. It's animated, it's terrible, most people haven't heard of it. Dan, you may have done, we've mentioned it once or twice. It's the film that normally shall not be named. Oh my. Food Fight. I keep forgetting it that ain't... exists until you bring it up. <laughs> it's, not that, it's not that poorly rendered, as in like it had more than one pass on each uh, on each uh, uh, creature. But just the the amount of just running around and screaming. Do you remember like all those gags in Food Fight where like two guys would come on like have a like, slap fight with each other, and then someone else would like squirt cream out of its head just because, and just like that level of just like meh, 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 stuff's happening, meh, meh, meh. That's all this was to me. Just stuff happening. Yeah, people running into walls going. Meh, like that it just stay tuned folks because in the next few weeks we are actually presenting a full episode on this the worst animated movie of all time food fight i would say watch it first but you won't thank me there was a point after the first after the school sequence where chicken should we explain plot folks well, i guess chicken we should at some point <laughs> It's very quick. Chicken Little thought the sky was falling because the thing fell on his head. Um, every, everyone panicked and thought the sky was falling. Then they found out that it was probably an acorn and everyone thought he was crazy. So everyone teases him for it. And he's become kind of a Peter Parker figure um, in that, you know, he's teased at school. Yeah. Um, but he's teased not because of who he is, but because he made this one um, oversight. Uh, and then it turns out later that what fell on his head was like a piece of, of um, chameleonic metal from a, uh, a UFO, and it actually aliens have inv- they haven't invaded, but they're around spying on these animals in this crap Zootopia. By the way, <laughs> just like watching it after Zootopia actually made me angrier than watching it before Zootopia. Because <laughs> it's like, wow, they, not only could they really do this brilliantly and have meaning to it, but there's so much layered into Zootopia that even honest trailers couldn't find anything really wrong with it. <laughs> From Pixney, I mean Disnar. Man, these two are really starting to blend together. Follow along with this kids film slash noir crime thriller, full of bright colors, cute characters, allegories to contemporary racial and class politics. You're not like them. Oh, there's a them now. Police discrimination. You think I'm going to believe a fox? Affirmative action. Mammal inclusion initiative. Tokenism. Sir, I'm not just some token bunny. Sexism. So are all rabbits bad drivers, or is it just you? And racial slurs? A bunny can call another bunny cute, but when other animals do it, it's a little... (gasps) They will either teach your kid to be more tolerant, or turn them into a furry. So settle in for a fantastically animated, well-told lesson about disproving stereotypes. Even though the fox character really is sneaky, the weasels do cheat, and the sloths are slow. Oh, wait, no. Does this mean I'm racist? I owned a bunch of rabbits when I was a kid. I mean, no, they were mine. Not that I, you know, not that they're property or... Look, I love rabbits, okay? This... That came out all wrong. Go to starring. Go to starring. But there's a bit where Chicken goes home and he talks to his dad early on, and his dad's like, eh, and, and he seems to be ashamed of him, and Chicken feels sad. 
And I just said, no, you haven't earned this bit. It's been black, 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 black. Up until now, you you can't work up to, like, like, like with no build-up at all, suddenly go here. That's not how story works. You can't just go, black, 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 black. Oh, he's sad. Black, 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 black. Just that. <laughs> no. Tonally wrong and vile that they actually even attempted to make it feel like a Pixar at that point. Like, you know, it would almost be better if it was just consistently bleh, bleh, bleh the whole way through rather than trying to shoehorn in what feels like this manufactured emotion. And I, I got really cross about it. And La- Lyra got angry with me because she she had started to sort of like tear up at that point. I was like, no, but you didn't see that. Like, it's, like it's, it's, it's hollow. It's filled with nothing. And I felt bad for, sh- for, for berating <laughs> my child for feeling something. <laughs> and so, you know, may- maybe it does work, but it feels so manipulative in doing so. Yeah, it, like all it stands is as a sort of shadow reminder that they're they could have attempted this and they could have and maybe they originally meant to because like this is Mark Dindle. He has made some good stuff. I can't imagine him fumbling this this badly. I, I feel like this has to be the result of heavy executive meddling because mm. it, I mean, between the obvious emulation of the DreamWorks and Blue Sky gag formula the abundance of heavily dated licensed music, just the Mm. obvious gags everywhere. Everything in this movie feels like what happens when an executive sits in on a screening and then says, what if the pig fell down? Or what if there was a bird and the background of a conversation scene running into a storefront window over and over? Or what if this scene started Guess what? That China shop is run by a bull. Oh my god, that's so anarchic! It's it's always the first thing you could think of, the most obvious gag you could find. Like, what if this scene started with the duck and the pig singing karaoke to Spice Girls for about a minute too long? Oh god, that was the that was the zenith for me. Oh uh, yeah. no, hang on, the Nadir. That was the, <laughs> the <other> absolute <laughs> lowest point I think in Disney history was when they were screaming that Spice Girls tune, because uh, it wouldn't stop. And I was like, I was I was starting to dry heave. <laughs> it just kept going. <laughs> That, 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 they, is... they used that piece of music in Small Soldiers to, uh, uh, to try to, um, you know how they, they, they during sieges, they play annoying music to get them out of the uh, house. It's that. <laughs> so yeah. it's terrorism, effectively. <laughs> they were attacking me with the Spice Girls. And I bought that album. I was a fool. <laughs> a I can't separate. We all went through the 90s. It's fine. <laughs> I can't separate <laughs> Mario 64 from two become one. <laughs> I'm diseased in my brain. Yeah, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna really, really, really wanna see you. If you wanna be my lover, you gotta get with my, gotta get with my friend. It lasts forever, friendship never ends. If you wanna be my lover. I think Mind of Deer was the end was the end of the world as you know it and I will survive and all every other song they could find over the climax and I just by that point I'd hit such a such reference fatigue I was actually I don't yell at the the TV very often but like that was definitely a case of me just yelling fucking stop I'm desperately trying to get invested in this stop fighting me <laughs> that is the most sweet-natured man I think I know, and if it got that out, that reaction out of him, did you notice? By the way, the pig was just one giant walking disco gag because yeah. he likes disco, so they just kept 
crowbar oh, no, no, no. that stuff in. He was a fat joke as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's also a fat joke. So he's a twofer. Um, yes. Quite a, quite a few fat jokes in this era. The uh, mm. but uh, the end of the world as we know it bit from with REM that was in Independence Day nearly ten years previously. It wasn't that funny then. Yeah. It's the same the, scenario. You can't just repeat the joke, you idiots. That uh, that piece about movies, uh, particularly animated movies, being punched up because people don't think they're funny enough. Mm. This is like something which is all punch up. Yes. Or um, kick down. Or, or kick down, indeed. And I, I think you're absolutely right, Dan, about the uh, the idea that the execs watch it and then go, oh, what if this happened? Or what if that happened? And they think they're just making random suggestions, but everybody in the room is so terrified of them. Um, and I'm guessing that at this point, they've still got that thing about anything that comes in a, as a memo from an executive, you have to do. Yep, mandatory. So there you go. So those silly little suggestions after the screenings, Oh, they're all going in. Yep. But we haven't got room for the plot now. Take the plot out. The memos are more important. There's another bit. They, this ruins an uh, an exponentially better film for small children. Can you think of what it is, Dan? Because Sharon probably knows this one. It's a spoiler line. Oh, yeah. Little, ori- <laughs> okay. little orange Qbert guy from Pixels goes, me, 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 me. And the pig goes, Darth Vader is Luke's father. And it's like, Wow. A lot of kids in this audience, if you're young enough to like this film, you're probably a bit too young to really grasp why Star Wars is great. In which case, you probably haven't seen Empire yet. In which case, that ruins everything for you because of this film. Was it worth... It's not even a joke. Nope. It's not even a joke. I mean, technically, in a way, they kind of reference it in... Toy Story 2, but they never actually mentioned Darth Vader exactly, so you know, like, and plus those scenes with Zerg are great, so yeah. it's, that's kind of <laughs> worth it. If but, like, you've, just, just if you've say earned it. it! Yeah, and if you pick so. But, um, but yeah, the, 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 troublingly, unless, you find out later that they were just beamed on board the spaceship, but the fox and the turkey get murdered in front of us for our amusement. Yeah. That actually Distra- is kind like, of upsetting. Disintegrated. Yeah. And then the fox is permanently altered and made yeah. a different person. For yeah, th- like they lobotomized her. Yeah. Oh, now she's nice. We fixed her. Yeah, that, that's kind of upsetting, too. They would not do that Oh, my now. God. Just No, do you, know, do you know exactly what they do now to the bully fox that sees the error of his ways? He basically grows up to kind of regret being a dick when he was younger. Yeah. Zootopia. Wow. We're supposed to root for Chicken Little as the underdog, but I wanted him served up with fries and barbecue sauce. I would happily eat Chicken Little and not shed a tear. <laughs> I'm not joking. I would eat that guy. <laughs> I don't care if he talks. I'll give the animator credit that Chicken Little is one of the few characters that I do feel like is actually reasonably well animated in this uh, in this film. Most of the rest is pretty weak, especially on the acting front. Like you said, just lots of big, noisy acting choices, but... Chicken Little actually looks pretty good. Of all of them, if I'm going to find something to like, his father, you know, I, I kind of like him. I do you know, too, he, as a character. He's a, he's a good guy at heart, and if you can find any story in there at all, it's that Chicken Little was right, the sky was falling, it's the aliens, and it's a Jack Kirby style. They even call the little orange Hubert guy from Pixels Kirby, in reverence to Jack Kirby for this kind of scenario, whereby the 
aliens coming down to lay waste to the town and just looking for their tiny cute baby who by the way has no comprehension of the carnage going on around him in a way that's kind of reflective of the audience of stupid children that they have just nothing but contempt for or that they believe are there that, that children should be this dumb and this oblivious turns out chicken little's dad was never ashamed of him even though everything seems to point to the fact that he probably was and that's it that's the story chicken exonerated and at the end you get adam west as like this pumped up hyper chicken in a a sort of a a hollywoodized version of chicken little where he's like you know right let's show these alien bastards what's for and you know what better movie (laughs) wish i was watching that version of chicken little because adam west is hilarious why aren't we watching that film (laughs) (laughs) oh god I did find it immensely frustrating that if there is a message in this, um, the essence of it seems to be that if you're a kid, uh, adults will never believe you. And um, when adults decide that something's going to happen their way, you have no control. There's nothing you can do. Basically, just go out and run around with your friends for a while until the adults decide to do something else. Yeah. And it'll all come out in the wash, and don't worry about it, and don't do anything about it, and don't, for God's sake, even attempt to look below the surface of what's going on or anything like that. Just wait. Just wait. Just sit there and watch this. So the diametric ideological opposite of it. Shouldn't the point of it have been, and I don't know if this was actually the point of it, but that... I've got to go and warn the townspeople. They'll call you an idiot again. They will ridicule you. You'll never live this down. It doesn't matter. Even if I'm wrong, I've got to actually do it because it's the right thing to do. I mean, just top of my head, that might be, you know, just like facing up to your fears and and, and, and being able to just get through public ridicule. I don't know. Yeah, it feels like it's that's present, but not drawn to the fore, like as the thing to yeah. focus on. There's no, that that's it. You know what? You have just put your finger on it there. It has no core. Yeah. What? Yeah. And if exactly and when we when we go on to talk about these next two, there are things wrong with them. There is plenty about them that is a little bit frustrating, but they have a core. Hmm. True. Hollow and filled with nothing. Um, yes. It's weird can hearing we, Patrick we... Stewart for 30 seconds and then never again. Yes. He turns mm-hmm. up as a sheep for no reason yeah. and then goes. And then like Harry Shearer. Were... <laughs> yeah, Harry Shearer was a newscaster. As, as it's like this Simpsons yeah. voice. Most of what I was saying in response to this film was, what the hell are you doing in this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, and the dog has bones on its curtains because dogs like bones. It's that level of jokes, folks. Yeah. <sighs> Pretty damn jokes. Okay, um... Any, any more on Chicken Little? Little chicken. Well, fortunately for Disney, and unfortunately for my faith in a just universe, this film did very well. Ranking yeah. raked in about three hundred fourteen million, which is not as well as Pixar's movies were doing. So I don't know how this did for that kind of bargaining table uh, results they were looking for, but it was better than most of Disney's two D films have been doing for the last decade. So. For better or worse, Chicken Little secured Disney's 3D animation future, which now we know has a happy ending, but at the time, again, devastating. Yeah. It's difficult to tell what they would have done had it not done that fantastically, because Meet the Robinsons was in the already in the final stages here. They had The Wild, they had uh, 
um, vault. We're not going to cover the wild. We only had to do one of those two films in the canon, and we, we went for dinosaur. <laughs> but um, I mean, you know, at what point would they have gone? This isn't working. Let's just go back to like it, what would have had to happen was that all of these movies we just mentioned would have had to do just terrible, just like not quite break even. And then The Princess and the Frog comes back and the public goes nuts over it and goes, this is what we wanted. Musker and Clements doing their thing. We remember this from when we were kids and now we have kids. This is brilliant. Thank you. Do more of these. That would have been an interesting alternate history where like if this shift to 3D Hail Mary move had bombed, Mm. what would they have done? But that, that basically, Tangle would have had to do no money and Princess and the Frog would have had to do a billion for them to actually go back to this. Yep. So really, it was all contingent on the public to actually vote with their wallets, and we didn't. Because we don't... Really, honestly speaking, we don't care what kind of animation style it is. We want sort of something that we feel familiar with. Kind of. Don't we? I mean, what... what, what the, that, I'm not a marketer, manifestly, but why the hell did Frozen do that well versus Princess and the Frog? You said it's, I mean, because both of them subvert the princess trope. Right. You said that Chicken Little did about what, Dan? 315? Uh, about, yeah, about 315. About 315. Okay, so let's say that that's the market that's just parents taking their kids to see any old crap that you put on the screen. It could be anything, but if it is the animated movie of the the moment, that's roughly what you're going to take. So if you want to make more than that, you've got to be able to appeal to a, a different market, a different demographic. Ultimately, the success of Tangled and Frozen was not, I, I don't think... I mean, if you consider particularly Frozen, how much they made, how all-pervasive it became, that's not just kids. That's not just parents with nothing to do with their children on a weekend. That's not even kids going to see it over and over again because they really, really liked it. You've got to have something which appeals to many different people on many different levels. Yeah. Because the other thing is as well, if you if you, you just go, right, well, we're going to target two disparate audiences. So, for example, um, something like Shrek, you've got the animation and the silliness and the, and the falling over and the eating lizards and rats for the, the young children. That gets you your 315 million. Then you've got the... Um, uh, the pop culture references and the sly sense of humour that's going to get you the adult market. But that's only two ends of the spectrum. If you want frozen money, I, I suspect, basically, you need something that is going to blend those things and something that can be... Um, that's not just we ticked this box and we ticked that box, but that offers all sorts of options and doesn't alienate anybody with anything specific. I think there's also an element of lightning in a bottle tapping into the zeitgeist luck as well. Like, I think Frozen was exactly the film at exactly the time that it needed to be. I think Tangled, like, set the ball on the tee to get, because it did really well and got people interested in Disney 3D in a new way. And then Frozen came out and with a hit song that everyone was hearing everywhere and it's just mm-hmm. and a new kind of princess story that they never told before and i think they just i think they released exactly the movie they needed at that exact moment and it just caught fire 
I wonder yeah. when you were going to mention the song that that the song cannot be underestimated in its uh, you it, it, let it go the its ability to locate everyone in the audience who actually gave a damn and make them go this is about you and have everyone go hearts in their throats oh my god and then suddenly they're coming back multiple times because that's how you make a billion they come back again and they tell everyone how great it is that's how you do a titanic that's how you do an avengers the princess and the frog too quirky too slightly off the mark you know uh, uh hero of color that's going to keep a certain contingent of people away who are going to go well she's not like me uh horrible to say but true jazz style soundtrack that's going to get people who don't really like jazz all that much to go i'm not watching that it's got the old uh, 90s Disney uh, um, Renaissance uh, artwork. That's going to keep people away who are like, well, I only watch things by Blue Sky Studios. Only they don't say that. They say, I like Ice Age, I like Scrat. That's well funny. That Madagascar ain't bad either. And we went to see the Penguin one of those, and uh, to the Penguin one with a dance. And the boys like cars, and we all like Shrek. You, as you were saying about alienation, Sharon, there, there, there are certain things you can do to get, get everyone to just explode with joy for a film. And there are certain things you can do to make a film distinctive, but push other people away as a result. There's also the name, which is, I think, something that Disney really latched on to. I think a lot mm. of them felt that having the title be The Princess and the Frog clearly being a princess story. I think they believed that that kind of hurt them to a point, which is why ever since the then, boys away been, yeah ever since then they've been re- naming them with very neutral names like tangled like rapunzel got changed to tangled the snow queen became frozen and so forth because i think they believe and i don't know if they're right i don't want them to be but i think they believe that in a household that may have boys uh, like sons and daughters in it the son's tastes are more likely to govern what like the family goes to see and i don't want that to be true but and I don't know if it is, but I think that is some, like the kind of logic that led them to that change. And they've been really successful since. I'm hoping that that is not causal. I think to a degree, it's the thing about uh, basically girls will accept or the, right. This is the, the generally received wisdom. How accurate it is, especially today, I don't know. Um, but from a marketing perspective, that girls will accept um, stories with with male heroes and find things in there to identify uh, with for themselves. Boys will not do the same for things with girl heroes. Mm. It's 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 there seems to be a belief that it is too hard for a boy to grasp the idea that there might be something in a female hero that he can connect with. Now, like I said, I really hope that's not true, especially now. Um, and I, I honestly think it's not. The the fact that you've, like you say, m- these stories are doing massive gangbusters in the audiences. Um, it, I'd, I'd like that to be done, please, and just let's get rid of that idea. But that is why you've got centuries of of stories um and particularly in in the era of uh of cinema you've got decades of heroic stories that are based around male characters and maybe there is an element there of of people think that um that girls won't push for the thing that they want they'll go oh yeah okay we'll go and see what you want to see 
I have nothing great to add to that. That was already, that stood very well on its own. <laughs> Something that was on Twitter this week was um, people were losing their minds over the fact that there is a gay couple in Finding Dory. They're like, gay couple, this is wrong. No one seemed to really lose their minds when a woman fell in love with a bee in Bee Movie. Yeah. That was fine. <laughs> long as it ain't a gay bee. Uh, I and I don't someone... know if it was a joke, but somebody responded to that with, yeah, but it was it a It was a heterosexual bee. bee. <laughs> <laughs> this is in connection with the idea that in Frozen 2, there's a, a, a small but dedicated campaign, Get Elsa a Girlfriend. I, oh, I would love to see Disney grow the cojones to do that. Because they would be purposefully alienating a contingent of their audience and be like, well, I'm not going to take my children to see this then. Well, in refusing to take them to see Frozen 2 and telling them it's because Elsa's gay in this one and also probably throwing out your DVD of Frozen 1, your kids will resent you. They may even end up more sympathetic to the LGBT community. So enjoy the own goal. But at a certain point, it becomes the like the people you alienate become a much smaller crowd than the people who adore you for it. And at a certain point, I'm pretty convinced that Disney is going to see the numbers are favorable for that choice. And when they do it, it's not going to be, I think Bob Shipman said this, it's not going to be a surprise. We're not going to find this out in theaters. Disney will be like broadcasting this like early in production as loud as they can. Okay, so, uh, any more on Chicken Little? Please no. Dear God, no. <laughs> Going back to what I said in one of the first episodes of this, if they could reorganize their canon, this needs to go first. It has no place being in the canon. No, it doesn't feel like a Disney in any way, shape or form. There is nothing there that feels like Disney. Yeah. If you showed all of these films to an alien... When they got to Chicken Little, they go, "No, really? Seriously, they would. They would without the awareness of the cultural changes in the landscape with uh, with DreamWorks. If they'd watched all of them up to that point, they would go, get this off my screen. This has no bearing on what has come before. This is from Van Gogh's finger painting period. <laughs> from Van Gogh's throwing feces at a canvas period. Okay, sorry, right. Van Gogh. It is no, in America, it's Van Gogh. I know, I know. <laughs> I didn't mention this before, but as well as eating the uh, chicken, I would eat his uh, his duck friend and his pig friend as well. Just gobble it's, them up. It's a good three course meal. I am the foxy loxy in this case. <laughs> <laughs> in the original, um, I mean, in the original fable, it's about, it's basically about this chicken that an acorn falls on its head and. It starts. To, it, it panics and doesn't. Uh, something tells it that the sky is falling, and it goes, "Oh my god!" And then it goes around telling all of the. Uh, it tells Turkey Lurkey and Ducky Lucky and Foxy Loxy that the sky is falling, and I think the fox basically invites Chicken Lick. It's actually in in Europe. It's Chicken Licking, huh. who is finger licking good. I gotta mention. <laughs> um, and uh, then the fox basically invites Chicken Licking inside his home and eats him. And that's the end of the tale. The The end of the story is Chicken Lickin' gets eaten because he was naive. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> How did Disney change that one around? I, I guess they have a track record for it. And on a surface level on paper, if we ignore what the film actually is, having 
as a premise, what if Chicken Little was right? Has potential for a fun idea. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But, I mean, the sky is falling. It would have to be that the world is ending. That the yeah. sky is literally falling. It's that giant spacecraft out of Independence Day Resurgence, and it is. it has its own gravity, and it's going to crush the little town of animals with their bone wallpaper. <laughs> with their bone <laughs> Uh, Bone Curtains is our Alice in Chains cover band. And that, that fish functions only as a oh, gag vehicle. fish out of water! Ah! Uh, it is only there so that the camera can kind of cut over to something funny happening, but funny but irrelevant happening. Uh, oh, irrelevant happening. <laughs> funny and, quotation marks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would eat that fish as well. I mean, I'm not really much for goldfish, but um, but I'd eat that fish. You're describing an amazing feast here. Yeah, it's delicious. Like a, I've turned chicken licking into a Jacobean banquet, <laughs> <laughs> which is a lot tastier than what we were actually served up by Disney, which is basically just a trough of fast food. Oof. School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon, and our $15 tier gets sponsor credit every episode, so a huge thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. And we'll be back next week with a double bill of two more forgotten Disneys from this dark wilderness period. Meet the Robinsons and Bolt. Many thanks once again to Daniel Floyd of New Frame Plus. So until next week, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's, school's out. out.
Let's finish on one of those cow songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I kind of want to finish on When You Wish Upon a Star. It seems like it, it's it's more. Yeah, you know what? You know what? Yeah. Sod the cows. Let's finish on that because it deserves it. Yeah. Agreed. This is for 2D animation, folks. And Disney 2D animation. Okay. Um, I've been actual. I've been Sharon Shaw. And neural handshake complete. Sorry, it's been so long since we've done it. <sighs> okay, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And neural, neural handshake complete. complete. <laughs> <laughs> Shut down the Jaeger, it's going to blow. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a cow in it. Okay, <laughs> see you guys soon.
your dreams. 